Welcome to the Outpouring Orlando Sermon Podcast. The Outpouring is a vibrant, Christ-centered church in sunny Orlando, Florida. Thanks so much for tuning in, and we hope you enjoy today's message by Pastor John Daniels. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Outpouring. Uh, My name is Pastor John, the lead pastor of this wonderful, beautiful church we call the Outpouring of Orlando. So glad that you joined us again for another week. So good to see you. If this is your first time uh, joining us on our online community, we just want to say thank you so much. We appreciate that you've decided to tune in with us on this day. And so we are just honored and excited. We pray that if you are ever in the Orlando area, that you would stop by and see us. We are just excited, though, today uh, as if you were with us in the present. And so we just want to say thank you to all of our first time visitors that are greeting and meeting with us for the first time on Lime. To my Outpouring family, hey man, it's so good to see you again for another Sunday. I hope you recuperated from last Sunday's message. I got so many text messages about toes being stepped on. So I hope you got a new pair of shoes or you got some new toes and are ready for this week. Um, but yeah, man, I, I, I pray that if you were blessed in the last two weeks or if you didn't hear the messages, go back, listen to them again. I know that there'll be a blessing to you. Well, we've been in a series in First Peter um, for some weeks now since January, and we're just going to journey along through it. I hope it's been good to you and a blessing to you. I hope you've grown through what we've studied in God's Word. And so if you've got a Bible, I want you to grab it with me and turn with me to First Peter chapter 3. And today we're going to park in verses 8 through 12, First Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 12, verses 8 through 12. And so if you have it, I'll begin reading. And it says this, starting at verse 8, 1 Peter chapter 3, it says this. Finally, all of you be like-minded and sympathetic. Love one another and be compassionate and humble. Not paying back evil for evil or insult for insult, but on the contrary, giving a blessing. Since you are called for this so that you may inherit a blessing. For the one who wants to love life and to see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. And let him turn away from evil and do what is good. Let him seek peace and pursue it because the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do what is evil. Let us pray. Father, we glorify you and we honor you today, God. We thank you that you've blessed us, God, to come together again, Lord. Uh, we pray, uh, Father, for everything that is happening in the world around us, Father. We, we pray and keep our hope in you no matter what we see on the news, God. Whether it's good news or not so good news, Lord, we remain rooted and grounded in our eternal hope, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, Father, we thank you today, God, that you will grow us through what we study. We thank you, God, that you would breathe life into this community of online believers today, God. I I pray that as for as much as we can, it can feel like home again. It can feel like church again when we see each other and gather. And so, Father, I just pray today that your son Jesus, ultimately that your son Jesus will be glorified, that, that he would be made known through the teaching and the preaching and the studying of your word today. And so, Father, I pray for each person that's tuned in. I pray for each family. 
I pray for each individual, God, I pray that you would keep, cover, and protect your people. God, I pray that we will be a blessed people because we serve a risen Savior. And so, Lord, we thank you today. We praise you. We give you glory. We give you honor. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. My sermon title for today's message is Responses That Glorify God. Responses That Glorify God. We find ourselves today in a section of 1 Peter in chapter 3 that is essentially a summary and a recap of everything that we've studied previously. And so it takes us back to the 11th verse of the second chapter when Peter writes to the exiles who are living in Asia Minor, which would be modern-day Turkey for us, he writes to them because they are believers, but they are living in a world that is hostile to what they believe. They are exiles not because they are lost geographically or because they're away from home geographically, even though that could be the case. They essentially are exiles because they find themselves in a land where they're strangers. They, they are essentially pilgrims that are passing through. And that is the same for you and I, that sometimes living in this world as a believer will feel like we're away from home. It will feel like we are different from anyone else. Doesn't mean that we're better, it just means that we are different because of what we believe. But with that comes some challenges. Quite frankly, with that, at times, it becomes persecution for standing firm in what you believe and about your biblical worldview. And so Peter wants to write to them primarily to encourage them, but also to warn them. He wants to give them the blueprint on how they should live in light of the culture that they live in. He doesn't call them to run away from the culture, to duck and hide and just wait to go to heaven, but he essentially calls them to engage with the culture, to transform the culture through how they live their lives. He calls their conduct to the carpet and lets them know that their conduct has redemptive value, that when God said, be holy because I am holy, he wasn't just calling them to be holy for holy sake. He wasn't just calling them to do good works for good works sake. But even their holiness, even the thing that made them different from everybody else, God was using that to draw the world to them, that, that they were different by design. And so today he wants to give a recap but he wants to ensure that our responses are right because he knows that because we are believers at times, we will face hostility in the world. But the interesting thing today is that he doesn't deal directly with how we engage with the unbelieving world. The first thing he wants to do today is make sure that our conduct is on point and how Christians deal with other Christians. And so today he starts off in verse eight dealing with how Believers should interact with each other in the church. And so the language that he uses, he takes a familiar approach. He talks to them like they are family members because essentially if you are a part of a church and if you're a part of the body of Christ, you are in a family. When you become a member or a covenant partner in a church, you are a member of that body. Those are your new brothers and sisters in that local community. Those are also your brothers and sisters in the world that are also believers because we share the same father. And so he addresses them in one verse because he knows that they'll have hostility in the world, but he also knows that if you've ever been to church and you're there for longer than five minutes, or if you've been to church for more than one week in your life, you know sometimes the church can have just as much drama as they do in the world. 
And so he wants to address them because he knows at times in church, even if you are well intended, it's a possibility that at some point you can get hit with friendly fire, that you can get hit with friendly fire in the church. And so he addresses the virtues that church members should have, that followers of Jesus should have, so that they don't have to face the same hostility in the church that they face in the world. And so what he's saying is, we should not have to exist in an environment in which we slander and insult each other. And so here's what he does. He lays out five Christian virtues that sustain the community, that keeps the community in cohesion with one another. He, he gives them what they should do to sustain the community in the midst of hostility outside so that they can prevent the hostility from coming on the inside amongst them. So there's five things that he calls them to. He calls them to be like-minded. He calls them to be sympathetic. He calls them to be loving. He calls them to be compassionate. He calls them to be humble. And so I want to briefly touch on all five of these and tell you what they mean and how they all fit together. And the first thing he calls them to do is to be like-minded. Now, he's not saying that they should all think alike all the time, that they should agree about everything that ever happens. But what he is saying is that if you are a believer, that there are some fundamental things about Christians that they should agree on. There are some fundamental things about the faith that Christians should agree on. We should agree on stuff like, who is Jesus? Was Jesus just God, or was he fully God and fully man? And so we should agree that Jesus was both God and man at the same time. We should agree on the person and the finished work of Jesus. We should believe in the exclusivity of Jesus Christ, that he is the only name by which men must be saved. We, we should believe that his substitutionary death on the cross was sufficient to pay for our sins. We should believe in the bodily resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. We should believe in the triune God, that God is one and three, one God, three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We, we should believe that. We should ultimately believe that salvation is not by works, but salvation is by grace through faith, that we don't get saved by our works, but we are saved by the finished work of Jesus. That means that we should agree that we've been forgiven by God's grace, that he had mercy on us, that we are not saved because we do good stuff, but we do good stuff because we have been saved. Those are some things that we should agree on. We should agree on the essentials of the gospel because when we agree on the gospel, it shapes and forms everything that we do, and it gives us the motivation for why Christians do what they do. He calls them to be like-minded so, so that we can all go in the same direction at the same time, that our, that our main thing is always the main thing. He calls us to be sympathetic with each other, to feel what one another feels, that we feel all of the joy and we feel all of the sorrow. When one of our brothers and sisters get blessed, we shouldn't be mad at them. We, we shouldn't be jealous of them. We shouldn't want what they have, but we should celebrate them. If somebody gets a new job, you are waiting to get a job, you hate your current job, so you're mad at somebody who got a new job. No, you should celebrate with that person because that's your brother or that's your sister in the Lord. You should celebrate with them. And so when he calls us to be sympathetic, he's saying enter into the feelings that they feel, whether good or bad. That means that if somebody is suffering loss as a believer, you get down in there with them because that's what Jesus did for us. 
when somebody is in pain, you may not feel the pain the way they feel it, but you should try to get in it with them. You should try to feel what they feel. That's what it means to be sympathetic. Jesus was both strong and empathetic towards people. He calls us to brotherly love, to do right by others because we're related, because we share the same father. He calls us to be compassionate towards each other. We're compassionate towards others because God was compassionate towards us. He saved us while we were sinners. Christ died for us. It is a call for us to be compassionate, to show kindness to our family members, to show kindness to other people in the church. It is a call for us to be humble. And this is important because humility was frowned upon in that culture. In that culture, to be humble was to be weak. It was to be weak. And so you did, every, you did everything you could to make sure that you were in the primary position, that, that you were number one, that, that you let people know that you were the best. But biblical humility says that I consider others more worthy than myself, that I'm okay with putting somebody else's needs ahead of my own, that, that if I'm a part of a family, that if I'm a part of a church, I don't insist on my own way, that I don't insist that we do things this particular way, but that I realize in the grand scheme of things, it's not about me. And so I don't have a problem with, with putting somebody else in front of me. I don't have a problem with putting somebody else at an advantage, even if it means that I'm sitting at a disadvantage. And so when we think about this idea of humility, it means also that I don't have to defend myself at every turn, that, that I don't have to defend my own honor, that, that I don't have to respond to everything that somebody says to me, that, that I know that I am a son or a daughter of God and that God loves me, that Jesus loves me. So I don't always have to defend my honor. I, I can let Jesus fight my battles for me, that, that I can be humble enough and sometimes to be quiet. That I can be humble enough to not respond to every rumor, not respond to every bit of nonsense that somebody says about me, that, that I can go the way of Jesus and sometimes I can suffer in silence or we can just agree to disagree. So here's why that's important, to have humility. Because when a person is prideful and a lot of self-assertion is going on, it undermines the unity of the church. It undermines the unity of the family. When you refuse to acknowledge that you may have been wrong, when you refuse to give others preference over yourself, it tears away at the fabric of a community of people. And so he calls the church to be sympathetic. He calls them to be humble. He calls them to be compassionate. He calls them to be sympathetic. He calls them to display this love. And so this, this atmosphere of love and unity and togetherness, it helps Christians when they are suffering hostility in the world. And so this call is a call for us to love one another so that we can support one another and also glorify God at the same time. And so this is what the church is called to. Not only that, but it makes the church look attractive to the world. If the, if the church does not look attractive, if the church cannot get along with each other, if there's so much hostility inside of the building, why would anybody ever want to come and be a part of the family? So here's a word of caution and a word of hope because no church does this perfectly. If you've been looking for the perfect church, you can stop your search today. There is no such thing as a perfect church. 
There's no such thing as perfect church members. There's no such thing as a perfect pastor. There's no such thing as a perfect praise and worship leader. There's no such thing as a perfect deacon in a church. There's no such thing as a perfect elder in a church. We're all flawed individuals striving to honor God. And so when we do that, when we do that, we all are doing our best to one, go towards the same mission, and secondly, to make sure that God is glorified through us because we know that the outside world is watching. And so, in church, it is inevitable when you are in close proximity to other sinners, because we all are, there will be times when we don't get along with each other. There'll be times when we fall out. There'll be times when some will harbor unforgiveness against others. There'll be times when we will walk by each other and not speak to each other. There are times when we will do stuff to get on each other's nerves. But here's what the gospel should do for us. It should at some point, when the Holy Spirit pricks your, pricks your heart, something should draw us back and say, you know what? God has forgiven me, so now I can issue out that forgiveness to others. Now, I want to say this. You need to use wisdom when doing that. You need to use wisdom in doing that. Just because somebody has hurt you doesn't mean you always got to go run back and put yourself in the line of fire. But it does mean that you can love somebody from a distance. And so, so this is something that we strive for, that, that can't be done in our own power. We need the power of the Holy Spirit to be able to live this thing out. It is too hard for us. I think that is one of the things that, un that we undermine about the good news about Jesus Christ. We undermine the power of the Holy Spirit. And a lot of times we try to do stuff and love people and bear with people in our own flesh, and that is an impossible task to do. We need the Spirit of God to do this. We need to stop suppressing the Spirit. We need to Stop quenching the spirit and we need to fan the flames so that we can strive towards togetherness and unity so that we can be beautiful to the world. So he tells us that the spirit doesn't just unite us, but it also empowers us. That's how he deals with the church. But then he moves on to deal with how we respond as believers to hostility in the world. Here's what he says in verse nine. Not paying back evil for evil or insult for insult, but on the contrary, giving a blessing since you will call for this so that you may inherit a blessing. And what he's saying is there were times when they would be insulted, that they would be abused, that, that, that they would have their character defamed because they were believers. They would use uh, foul language in false accusations and slander to defame Christians. Th they would do that to discredit them because they were different. And so people didn't understand Christianity. They, they, they didn't like Christians. And so they would do these things and, and verbally abuse them because they didn't like them. And so we have to refer back to what Peter wrote in the second chapter, verse 12, here's what the reminder is. Peter said this in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12. Be careful to live properly among your unbelieving neighbors. Then even if they accuse you of doing wrong, they will see your honorable behavior and they will give honor to God when he judges the world. So he's saying that, that the Christian response to hostility was different than the world around them. They, they responded differently, even if they were treated bad. So Christians didn't go around writing bad Google reviews 
on restaurants. They, they didn't go back, go, go around tweeting people to death every time somebody said something bad about them. They, they didn't blow people up and put them on blast on Facebook. They, 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 didn't, they didn't go and leave horrible comments under another person's social media page because they were hostile to Christians. And, and so they, they didn't dishonor leaders just because they didn't agree with what the leader did or what the leader said. And so, so they, they understood that retaliation was never a part of the Christian arsenal to battle persecution. Let me say that again. Retaliation has never been a part of the Christian arsenal in handling persecution. As Christians, we do not retaliate when people do us wrong. And so, that should liberate us. We don't have to defend every negative or discouraging thing that is said. You will drive yourself crazy having to always defend yourself or plan how you're going to retaliate or respond to somebody. Here's what First Peter, it said in First Peter chapter 2, verse 23. It says this, when he was insulted, talking about Jesus, when he was insulted, he did not insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. And what he's giving us is the example of Jesus. Jesus broke the vicious cycle of having to escalate conflict that is so normal in our families and in our churches. And so this is how we are to respond to undeserved suffering. This is the example and the freedom that we have in responding to hostility and challenging situations, not just in the world, but also in our families and also in the church. We don't always have to respond. We don't always have to fall out. We don't always have to curse each other out. We don't always have to talk behind each other's backs. We don't have to do that. We can respond differently. And so the antidote to evil treatment and when somebody insults you, uh-oh, is to bless the other person. The antidote to evil treatment and insults is to bless the person that insulted you. Before you turn me off, I want to read to you the words of Jesus in Luke chapter 6, verse 27 through 28. Here's what Jesus said. He says, but I say to you, love your enemies do what is good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. And if that wasn't enough, pray for those who mistreat you. Wait a minute. He says, love your enemies? What, what does he mean by love your enemies? How, how can I love my enemies? When if I'm being honest, if you want to be honest today, how can I love my enemies when I don't even really like my enemies? How can I do this? How, how, can I, how, how can I do this? How can I love them although they hate me and treat me wrong? Well, here's the first thing that we have to do. We have to stop superimposing our Western cultural idea of what love is on the text. We can't impose our idea of love on the text. Our idea of love means emotional attachment with somebody. That, that means I have to feel all warm and fuzzy for me to love somebody. But the command to love in the Bible is not about emotional attachment. It's actually about actions. What he's saying is that even if somebody does you wrong, you love them by doing the right thing towards them no matter how you feel about them. Let me say that again. But what he is saying is that we ought to do the right thing towards them no matter what our emotions are towards them. And so love in this sense means that my actions toward them are right and just whether I feel like it or not. Ooh. Uh, that takes a lot of maturity. That, that, that takes a lot of maturity. And, and for a lot of us, I think right now we're realizing that we have a lot of growing to do. 
We have a lot of growing to do as Christians because it is hard for us. It is hard for us to love somebody that mistreats us. It is hard for me to detach my feelings from how I treat somebody. But this is what the Bible calls us to. And it's not a bad thing. It's actually liberating. We can have to try to create and muster up some good feelings about somebody and try to strive to do the right thing. Well, he's saying Christian love means that I don't have to feel in love with you to do the right thing by you. That, that even if you treat me wrong and I feel hurt and I feel bad, I got enough Jesus and enough Holy Spirit in me that I have the inner fortitude to break the cycle of nonsense that goes in the wrong direction. And so I can take your insult and let the Holy Spirit work on my heart. I think this calls for a moment of practical application. Sometimes we need to take a breather when we've been insulted. So sometimes we need to take a step back. And I know in the moment that, man, you were like on page four of that text thread, you know, that if you got an Android, the pages are probably out of order, and so the person gets the page, the kids are text, and they don't understand it because your paragraph one is actually paragraph six, and your paragraph seven is actually paragraph one, and so it doesn't make sense to the person that, that is getting your text, but if you got a, a iPhone, then your text will come through clearly. But before you fill that whole novel up with your feelings, maybe you ought to let the Holy Spirit work on your heart before you respond to them the way they responded to you. That, that takes a lot of Christian maturity. That takes a lot of growing up. And so we have to realize that at the, end of, at the end of the day, Jesus came to save us while we were his enemies. He gave us life so that we could have eternal life. He did something good to us while we were being bad to him. Wow. And so this is the way that the kingdom of God is so counterculture. Peter takes it a step further than just doing good to them. He says, respond to evil and insult with blessing them. Here's what it says in verse 9 again, not paying back evil for evil or insult for insult, but on the contrary, giving a blessing since you are called for this so that you may inherit a blessing. He says you are called for this, giving a blessing because you are called to this. This is not just something that is a suggestion or something that we can pick or choose that we do. This is a command because he says we were called to do this. We were called to bless those who do harm to us. In the Greek culture, to bless someone meant to publicly Speak highly of that person. In the Greek culture, that's what it meant. But biblically, it takes it a step further. Biblically, to bless someone means that I, I invoke God's favor on them. I ask God to show his favor on them and his grace upon them, even though they did me wrong. I am called as a believer to pray Pray for their well-being. Pray that something good happens to them. Pray for the boss that laid you off. Wow. Pray for the family member that hurt your feelings. Pray for the sibling that you don't have a relationship with. Pray for that, that, that parent that, that left you out in the cold. Pray for the person that did something bad to you. This is the way of the kingdom to tell the person that did something bad to you that you know what? I feel a little funny towards you, but you know what? This ain't about my feelings. I pray 
that God gives you his best. I, I want the best for you. I appreciate what you did for me in my life. Although we got started on the right page, but we ended up on the wrong foot. You know what? I appreciate all the good stuff that you did for me. I appreciate who you were in my life, even though it ended the way it ended. Sometimes we have to bless people in order to release them so that they can go to the next place in their life. So it may not have worked out well with you, but that don't mean you can't bless them. When was the last time you blessed the job that you left? When was the last time you blessed the person that left your company, that, that, that was a good employee and that you did the right thing to and they, they left you? What, 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 when was the last time you blessed this is for my pastor friends. When's the last time you blessed the person that left your church? When was the last time you blessed your sister in Christ that you fell out with and she left? You said, you know what? I pray God's blessed for you. It was a pleasure to know you and to serve with you. And so to bless people that have offended you doesn't mean that you just say it with your words. It means that it has to come from your heart. Wow. And he says, this is what we've been called to do. Anybody can hold a grudge. Anybody can harbor unforgiveness. Anybody can gossip. Anybody can talk behind somebody's back. Anybody can get on the phone and talk about who did what. Anybody can do that. Anybody can slander. That, that's just evidence of immaturity and ultimately it's evidence of unbelief. And so you should be, you would be shocked at the number of Christians that hold 15 20, 30-year grudges with people in the church and family members. You will be shocked at the amount of petty stuff that people stop speaking to each other over. You will be shocked at the amount of nonsense if you asked and you figured out what the, the issue was. You were like, y'all fell out over that? Over, over me not seeing you and you assumed that I saw you and didn't speak to you? You, you, you fell out with me because I called you to try to help you and you didn't want to receive my help. That's, the, that's why we're not talking. And so when we've been saved, when we've been given God's mercy and his grace, how dare we, how dare we not extend grace to others? And so this is just a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. This is a demonstration of God's grace in our life. This is a type of self-control when we can bless those who have hurt us. But bigger than that, it is evidence of a life that's been transformed by Christ. This is a good witness to a watching world. This is what actually makes Christianity distinctively different. It's not that we're doormats. It's not a sign of weakness. It's a sign of strength and confidence in God that sees all and knows all. Our response is redemptive, and this is what makes Christianity beautiful to a watching world. He says, since you are called to this so that you may inherit a blessing. This path leads to being blessed. Knowing the blessing that we receive from the Lord enables us to bless others, even our enemies. Knowing that we have a reward already waiting for us, there is no need for me to fight with somebody over something that Christ has already died for. I don't have to curse you out. Jesus died for me and redeemed me. I'm having to curse you out. I got to talk behind your back. Jesus died 
for that gossip. I, I don't need to slander you because Jesus died so that I don't have to slander you. But when he got up out of that grave, he rose to life and I got up with him. And because I got up with him, I can bless those who persecute me. So it's just a sign that I know that I've inherited eternal life, that, that, that I've been inherited eternal life that was accomplished for me by the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. That I put my trust in him knowing that he has redeemed me and saved me from my old ways. And so for anybody that desires to inherit eternal life, here's what the evidence of that life actually looks like. This is what the good life looks like. Let's read verses 10. Through 12, here's what it says. For the one who wants to love life and to see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit and let him turn away from evil and do what is good. Let him seek peace and pursue it because the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do what is evil. The way to love life and to see good days, if you want to love your life, if you want to love the life and cherish the life that God has given you, if you want to see good days, he says, keep your tongue from evil. Keep your lips from deceit. Turn away from what is evil and do what is good. Seek peace and pursue it. This, this is what it means to love life, to live it the way that God intended. And part of that is being able to control your tongue. Part of that is being able to not pay back evil for evil. But by doing good, when we can frustrate people's hostility towards us. Do you know that when you do good to somebody that's done something wrong to you, you frustrate their hostility? That, that you make them angry? That, that, that you're just living in peace? That you're just living out what God called you to live out? And they're wondering like, I just cursed them out with every curse word in the alphabet. And they still bless me. They didn't respond to me. Do you know what that does to a person? Oftentimes, that can break the cycle of evil. Because there's no way that you can fully go off on a person and you respond with grace towards them. And they walk away thinking that their actions are okay. I want to say this. This is not a call to be naive and not use wisdom. He calls us to pursue peace, right? He says, bless those, bless all the peacemakers. What he means by that is not just people who want peace, but people who pursue peace with others, right? But I want to tell you this. Some people are impossible to make peace with. There's a time when pursuing peace is not wise. Especially if it means that you're being manipulated or better yet, you know you'll end up getting out of character and losing your witness. So pursuing peace is good, it's redemptive, it's godly. But you also got to use wisdom. If it causes you, if you know a conversation with this person that's longer than five minutes is going to lead you to going off. He never says you can't pray for them in private. He never says you can't go to God on their behalf. It doesn't mean that, that, that I bless you. It can mean that I bless you in your presence, but it doesn't mean that I got to hold a long conversation with you. 
especially if it will cause me to damage my own witness. And so before I close, he gives us a beautiful illustration. So verses 10 through 12, he essentially is recounting Psalm 34. This is a psalm which is David's response to something that went, he went through in 1 Samuel chapter 21. It really started in 1 Samuel chapter 7. If you want to be entertained by the Bible, if you want to see, you want some comedy and some drama, I want you to read 1 Samuel. Read 1 Samuel, read 2 Samuel. It's the craziest stuff you ever read. But David, before he is king, is serving under this mentor by the name of Saul. Saul's king. David's a regular old dude, but he's been anointed king because he has the right heart posture. And so David does something that no one in Israel did. There's a group of people called the Philistines. David goes and fights on behalf of Israel against this person called Goliath. Goliath is this giant of a man. And David is like, yo, I, I got it. I can take him out. David ends up killing Goliath. He kills him. Takes Goliath's own sword from him. David's the man in Israel because David killed a giant. So on their way back from battle, all the people are shouting and singing David's praises. All the ladies in Israel are singing David's praises. David is the man. He's a man in the streets. Saul his mentor, the guy he's serving under, sees this. And instead of being proud of his mentee, Saul becomes jealous. And from that moment forward, Saul seeks out to take David's life. And if you read the story, David has several opportunities to take Saul's life, but he refrains each time. And Saul continues to try to kill David by himself, and he tries to send a group of people to assassinate David. He wants David dead, but David still honors the same person that is trying to destroy him. Th that's a beautiful story. That's beautiful. So here's what happens. There's an instance where David is running from Saul, and David runs to a place called Gath. What's the problem with Gath? The problem with Gath is that's Goliath's hometown. That's his hometown. And so you don't think the people who saw Goliath get killed were there? They were there and they watched what this Israelite did to this Philistine. They remember this. David walks into Gath because he's running away from Saul that's trying to kill him. He finds himself in, in Goliath's hometown. David has his sword with him. What a sign of disrespect for a warrior to have his sword taken by his enemy. And he gets there in Gath because he's running for his life. They got, they got David, gathered him up, arrested David. But here's a beautiful thing about David. Even though he is in enemy territory as an exile, he's away from home, he's away from home, he's away from home. David trusts in God. David is suffering because he's in a land that he's not from. David knew that even though I'm running for my life, even in enemy territory, God will deliver me. God will eventually judge those who are trying to persecute me. And all of that was a sign that David trusted in God. And so Psalm 34 serves for us as a reminder that even when we are in enemy territory, 
even when it feels like the bullets are flying in the world, flying at home, or flying at church, that we don't have to seek retribution, that God will not be mocked, that God, his eyes are on the righteous, that, that when you call out to God, he will hear your cry. It says the Lord's eyes are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers. So even if you feel like at times the world is caving in on you, I want to let you know today that God is fighting for you. Even if you don't see it, he's fighting your battle. Stop responding to everything that someone says to you. God has a purpose for your life. God has a plan for your life, and it doesn't consist of you getting down in the mud with other people. It doesn't consist of you wrestling and fighting over nonsense. It don't consist of you giving everybody a piece of your mind. God's plan for you is to show off the glory of Christ by your response. And so we can't do this on our own, but we can do it by keeping our eyes focused on Jesus. Jesus' death and resurrection on the cross ensured that we can bless those who persecute us. What could be a better indication of somebody that has real faith and a real life with Christ than someone that is so at peace with God that they don't have to fight, that, that they don't have to respond to insults every time the opportunity presents itself? How do I know when I'm at peace? I know when I'm at peace when the bullets are flying and I don't even have to shoot back. That I can say, you know what? Bless you. Because it's Jesus. He's going to the cross and he's suffering and he's on the cross. They are mocking him and insulting him. Same people that he was dying for. Same people that was persecuting him. And we look to Jesus. We don't see somebody that just died for our sins. He did do that. But we sell the good news short. When we don't realize that after his death, there is a resurrection. And his being raised to life made us new. And so when we died to sin, we were made alive with Christ. And that means that we show off the beauty of a resurrected life by our responses. That there are words and responses that glorify God. What would it be like in a world if we turned our complaints into prayers? Same energy it takes for you to curse is the same energy it takes for you to bless. Why not choose life? Why not speak life? 
So I don't know who this speaks to today. I think it speaks to all of us. But if you know that you harbor things, that you're upset about things, the way to express that ain't through insult. That's what unbelievers do. But believers can glorify God with their words. You know what David said at the beginning of Psalm 34, the first verse. He says, I will bless the Lord. He said, his praises will continually be in my mouth. Well, if his praises are continually in your mouth, how do those insults get there? How do those insults get there? God didn't just save your life. He also saved your mouth. That's a word. If you're watching today, maybe you need to surrender all of you to Christ. That includes your attitude, your disposition, the things that you harbor, the dismissiveness that you have towards others the bitterness that you have. But God has called you to do more than that. God didn't save you to leave you bitter. But maybe it's time for you to allow God to work on your heart for real this time. If that is you and you want to surrender. Maybe you've cursed more people than you've blessed. Today is the day that all that can change. So I just want to extend the invitation if that, that's you and you have been suffering unjustly for trying to do good. God has called you to endure because you would inherit a blessing on the other side. That we have this inheritance of a blessed life that is waiting for us, but that we can experience some of it now. If that's you today. If you're watching and you're with us live online, there's a button that should be there and you can surrender your life to him by clicking a button and one of our leaders will pray for you. If you're watching this on our, one of our platforms, right where you are, you can pray and just surrender to, to God. You can surrender to him. He says, turn away from evil to seek peace, to do what is good. He calls us to repent. Turn away from evil and turn towards God. All you need to do is by the power of the Spirit, put your faith, your hope, and your trust, your life. Trust your life to Jesus because he died for you. Let us pray. Father, we thank you today. Father, I pray for every husband, wife, brother, sister, single person, single mother, single father, I pray for every employee. I pray for every employer. I pray for every pastor. I pray for every leader. I pray for every congregant. God, I pray that we will use our words to bless others and glorify God. Lord, let us demonstrate a life with God and demonstrate the beauty of the gospel. And so, Father, we thank you today. We give you praise. We give you honor. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We hope you were blessed by the message today and would love to hear about how God is using this ministry in your life. 
You can connect with us online at outpouringorlando.com to share your story, request prayer, give financial support, or learn more about our ministry. We'd love to see you at one of our Sunday services if you're ever in the Orlando area. Thanks again for joining us today. Have a wonderful week.